Welcome to CultureCast, the podcast that focuses on culture in its broader sense. From putting people back at the heart of organisational culture, through to the seismic shifts taking place in society every single day. My name is Vimla and I'm the co-founder of Honey Badger, a UK business that focuses on designing and delivering measurable change to organisations through experience and culture. Today on the podcast, we have Rachel Liu, a lead service designer at Pearson and the founder of Inclusive Pioneers. Rachel's job has her working across multiple cultures in different environments constantly as she shapes the education sector. Rachel not only has her eye on different cultural backgrounds and experiences, but ages as well, opening our eyes to what culture can mean throughout our lifetime, not just in the present. In this episode, Rachel and I speak openly about being the children of immigrants and the impact that that has had on our relationships and personal cultures. Rachel speaks about how she's learned to accept that culture is flexible and that there's no right or wrong, and most importantly, how that's helped her make her relationship stronger. This podcast is the one worth listening to to kickstart your self-reflection journey and to understand how to apply that to your sector. I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoy taking part. Thank you, Rachel, for filling my day with positivity and for grounding me in the work I do. I hope you all feel the same after. Hi, and welcome to the CultureCast podcast. Today on the podcast, I've got Rachel Liu. Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, everyone. So as Vim mentioned, I've been, I guess, doing a lot of service design, really care about kind of inclusive cultures at the moment. It's been a mission more because of my background actually of like coexisting with the east and the west and that's been a thing that I've been really looking deeply in and the pandemic has kind of opened up that opportunity and that invitation to do so so yeah that's been something that I've just really enjoyed like the international research really understanding human behavior but in a cultural context and what does that really mean to design and cater for these people and that's the bit that I really enjoy the most because I always get insights which surprise me and every new insight I get gives me a different perspective it kind of kind was it undo that learning and then having to relearn so I'm really fascinated by that and how it changes over different life stages so from someone who is like a three-year-old what do they need in terms of learning compared to someone who's a little bit older, but also in different contexts and in different environments. And I think today, especially with the virtual spaces, what does that actually mean in terms of learning and growing and stuff? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think as a designer, we get bored when things are the same and monotonous and when we know it all. So we're always trying to like, search behind the hidden rocks for the opinions and voices that don't go heard and I think definitely having got to know you over the last few months I see that in a lot of our conversations as well but also to give our listeners a bit of background Rachel and I met on Twitter a few months ago when I was doing a shout out for people to talk to me about their culture for a book that I'm writing and it was in that conversation that Rachel and I were speaking quite a lot about managing different cultures, what it means to be different in the room, but also what it means to feel at home. And I'd love to give 
our listeners the opportunity for you to to explain that kind of sense of home to them that's a big question isn't it a sense of home one common theme that I found that binds anyone and I think this is one thing that's taken away during the pandemic it's the sense of that food comfort home and it links us designers together and it's that kind of space where even meaningful conversations kind of happen just randomly and actually recreating what that space looks like online because working as a team has always been collaborative physical spaces it's the first time I've ever experienced working from home so intensely so and what does that kind of look like in terms of building trust across different cultural boundaries where actually seeing someone face to face is one big part of building trust so yeah I definitely associate that sense of like that food and warmth like that Christmas feel that you would usually get we actually before Christmas we co-created what does that look like for our team to have something to look forward to as well and having everyone's voices kind of heard because not everyone celebrates Christmas actually and some people are alone as well and how can they join in and what we found was that say one colleague circumstance is that we had some nice ideas about cook-alongs and and things like that but it doesn't work if you're in a shared space that you barely have access to the kitchen or you don't want to take over the kitchen for a couple of hours so we had to be really creative and mindful for even a diversity within our own team so I think it's home is kind of partly accepting who you are but also feeling comfortable with other people too um, mm. that sense of belonging and I think that the connection and that sense of community is a big part of that or that's something that I found in my journey last year that was really important to me yeah and that sense of belonging is really difficult to replicate and finding those like genuine connections online gets even harder just because like small things like picking up visual cues to talk or knowing when someone's finished speaking or even if someone's just not having a great day it's hard to tell definitely I think it's especially what I've heard from teachers it's like you you kind of read the air or you read the room you're really used to reading that in a physical space and somehow it's when it's a digital it's much more flat <laughs> mm. and the signals are not quite the same you almost have to it's just different and being quiet can mean so many things that you don't expect as well that we've all been really out of our comfort zones there's that discomfort that kind of finding a way to acknowledge that and be okay with that in a way and that's why I think that mindset of hey let's experiment let's try out this is the time navigating the unknowns to try out different things that we wouldn't get to try before so I think switching that to a more what can we learn and how can we be more curious about it and in spaces that we haven't really looked at before it's an opportunity massive opportunity one of the things I'm most hopeful for about this year is the opportunity to change and co-create and realize what we have benefited from and what we want to change moving forward 
but to go again to go even broader what does culture mean to you not just as a designer but you as a person I guess because culture is very rich I think that's one thing that I love it's so diverse and different in unexpected ways and actually it's people who form that culture really so there is I guess subcultures of different levels and there is kind of that socialness of culture and norms would would kind of govern that a lot so there's I feel like there's culture at quite a national maybe country kind of level but there's some within the context of the environment that you have in every day so work what it's like in different I guess spaces almost what does that kind of culture look like? That's not giving a definition, though. No. We're not looking for a definition, though. It's more, what does it mean to you? And how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that kind of sense of national culture in those microcultures that you might be operating in? Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting is that culture we think culture is quite static but actually it's quite dynamic and it's always evolving it's quite an organic thing so over time it does change and I think you can actually almost shape what you would want and don't want to change if you're quite intentional about it Hmm. because then it shows up in the behaviors of our everyday and we will reinforce it in a very unintentional or intentional way so we have a choice of shaping that and I think that's what's really powerful about it like how do we kind of embrace the diversity but in a safe way where people feel heard and can have meaningful conversations that they don't have to agree on a certain perspective that we can see different perspectives and it's okay. <laughs> Actually, that sometimes is a source of that innovation to do things differently. Mm. And that's what's really missing from society at the moment, is that ability to embrace the difference and embrace the perspectives. Because as we've moved from physical to online, it feels that it's harder to have those culturally inclusive conversations in a way where we're not threatened or we're not defensive? Definitely. I feel like that fear takes over more these days and and we want to feel safe. So a way of feeling safe is obviously have people who are maybe even more similar to you and you hold on to them a bit more tightly. And that's normal as well, because at the first part of the pandemic, it was obviously very survival mode. And some parts it still is. Um, We're still navigating through that. So I think, yeah, it's having a little bit of courage of how can we show it to kind of have that curiosity for a little bit more of a stretch (laughs) every day. And if we choose that, it's kind of becomes a novelty. So I find it as well, like, I can't travel at the moment. And that was something that was the thing that really hit me when I'm in the pandemic, because the travel is part of me to really explore and understand things in new ways. It was a real source of creativity and inspiration for me. But I've now looked at it, reframed it in a way like, well, I can still explore different cultures across like the digital kind of spaces those boundaries have 
in a way, yes, it has blurred, but that opens up so much more opportunity and connect in new ways. And that's what I kind of been looking at, really interested in that. It's like, how do you facilitate those spaces and hold spaces for people that way? And that's why the Inclusive Pioneers was kind of born out of that, really, mm. as a way to try and experiment things and connect with people and, and share and understand better, like, you know, to learn. And for me, I'm a big driver of, like, learning. I think working in the education space, I learned to be a lifelong learner. Maybe I've learned to be more of a kind of binge learner in a way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great term. <laughs> so so um that itself can be a bit addictive which I'm a bit more wary of that I've had to simplify that a little bit more last year <laughs> so there are two points that I wanted to pick up there but I'll, I'll start with the last so you mentioned inclusive pioneers can you tell our listeners a bit more about that and what did what sparked the um, motive or inspiration to get it started yeah I guess there was two one was the Black Lives Matter movement. And then from that, there was a high agenda, both from Pearson and I guess my circles anyways. So it was really interesting that it even opened up conversations that I didn't expect or I didn't recognize how being a role model for color is so powerful. Mm. So I didn't, and being a... Um, kind of enterprise advisor for career programs for those who are underrepresented, those where they might kids don't have particular role models to aspire what career could look like. And it was really interesting how when we process like see what's around us, when we don't see representatives, we put that as a limiting belief. Like we can never be a manager or we can never have a you know, kind of an, an entrepreneur sort of role. It's not possible because everyone around me in my circles, they don't do it. Why mm. could I, you know, it doesn't give me permission or, or even question that. So there's a lot of that kind of reinforcing that kind of like limiting belief. Mm. So it is really reflecting of how I can really help as well. And then the second point, I think it was more a way to give back of when I processed grief I didn't realize there was a big cultural difference in processing that so and I think recognizing between the east and the west I thought I had I was kind of a bit more in harmony with the whole east and the west over the years it was very unexpected of how my parents behaved towards it and how I had very different expectations mm. where you Culturally, you can't talk about grief. It's such a bad luck type thing. So when I needed support, I just didn't feel like I was felt so alone that I do didn't feel like I have permission to talk about it. And it felt like a very vulnerable subject to talk about at work and very kind of shameful as well. It's kind of perceived as being weak. So after processing that, I was like, oh, okay, I do have a lot to kind of find a way to give back in a way and I feel like that kind of cultural intelligence is something that we don't really learn there's some level of emotional intelligence that are, is kind of growing but the cultural one is even less so so I think it's understanding behind the emotions behavior what is the kind of cultural value that governs behind that and then seeing it from that perspective I became less resentful 
towards my parents and the way that they reacted and acted. That's when I realized that actually even connecting people to share those things or to even build some of it is awareness. You know, some yeah. we all have our own blind spots. And it's not saying pinpointing like, oh, you have a blind spot, that's a bad thing. It's almost again that curiosity and wonder, that sense of travel to kind of get to know more about who you are and intentionally how you would want to show up and shape the culture. And I think that's quite empowering to know that you have a choice and contribute towards that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to hear you speak about because I think there's such a ignored part of us of how our culture drives us to act or have those expectations of one another in a different way. And we often forget that that cultural influence has such a big part on our lives. Wherever we're from, whatever we do, it's impossible to ignore. But I loved what you were saying about we have it in our power and our control to shape and change. Because again, I think a lot of people use it as an excuse of that's just my culture, it's how I am, done. <laughs> and actually, you can change bits of it. You can, or you know, you bring it up or you talk about why grief is a taboo or where it comes from. And at least then it gives a sense of understanding for why people are acting that way. Definitely. I think it actually improved my relationship with my parents during this period. So it only fostered and deepened it but also it meant that I can be a bit more have the courage to be a bit more vulnerable to know and acknowledge that for anyone who might be experienced grief in different ways and it's not just about losing someone there's just so many levels of grief that is happening at the moment Mm. and again because of fear we cling on to it we can't let go but actually once you pass the kind of you have meaning and you can let go you have a lot of learnings that you can embed and integrate and you remember what really matters, <laughs> which is actually more important. It's back to those core values of what makes you, you, both you, you know, it's kind of like we're all collectively have similar needs, but what also makes you uniquely you that you can share your gift as well to others. And I, I didn't realise that, like, for example, I always thought like being soft is quite a bad thing or a strong weakness or being kind of slightly emotional. But actually, during this period, that emotional, like recognizing that from even peers, that boundary of professional and personal is blurring, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel that actually having more empathy towards that and acknowledging that it's acknowledging more of who they are, really respecting for who they are, actually. Because sometimes we, we've actually locked away and don't see that part. But that's actually what makes us really human. <laughs> exactly. And for anyone that's interested in Inclusive Pioneers, it's, it's an event and community, right? And how could people yeah. get involved in it? Yeah, at the moment, we just tried out like two culture circles kind of gatherings. So already I learned one and iterated through the other. But I think what's interesting is that it's the blend of different cultures that makes it so enriching. And I think it gives more courage as well collectively to kind of go, oh, it's so firstly, it's okay," (laughs) And that we're not alone in this feeling some sort of like, oh, it's, it's awkward or we might feel a bit different and things, but actually be able to leverage that. Yeah, 
and having a space for that we don't get the space to talk about that absolutely not we're, we're thrown into situations where we're just expected to understand or know and there's there's no room for error or mistakes and it's really scary and it oversimplifies who we are as people because we're layered and complicated and interactions deserve that level of complexity as well could you you mentioned cultural circles there can you tell us more about that and and what that means yeah so that was our kind of first initiative from the inclusive pioneers so it's a kind of gathering where I create certain kind of topic based on a certain topic or theme so the first one is really you know identifying your cultural blind spots and that's to do with privilege first so you almost have tools and some kind of pre-read to before going into the session and we have like kind of paired conversations but also kind of we call it like harvest gatherings that share outs that after the smaller conversations for anyone who wants to share they can do that as well and yeah I think what I find it really nourishing myself which I you know it's kind of that that comfort food that I mentioned that kind of mm. sense of belonging which I didn't expect but I feel like the more I demonstrate and be a role model where I can show a bit of vulnerability it means that other people also do the same which is really nice because actually we get to talk about the cool things that are actually just really interesting yeah that we don't get to really talk about so an example of like last month's one was about identity and we talked about that identity is made up of horizontal and vertical so you've got the vertical ones where it's usually inherited from your parents and a lot of the times what you mentioned earlier it's like well that's my culture that's it you know we can't do anything about that very static but actually the horizontal identity is all your shapers and influence in your life right and that has been, that has continuously been growing naturally. Mm-hmm. And yes, some of the frictions maybe could or tensions is the vertical and the horizontal because maybe your life experience might be quite different from your parents or your grandparents and you know the generation previously. But actually, it doesn't mean that you can shape what, what does that you know kind of look like as a combination. In, you might even be able to get a nicer kind of, what is it? When I think about recipes, you know, part of the recipes is trying different things out. And actually, the best recipes are ones which are fusion of things. So you mm-hmm. get to like mix and match certain things that maybe no longer resonates today that's actually really important. Or borrow something that was actually back then, it still applies to today. And actually mixing that up is what makes it an interesting kind of meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like any food analogy and I'm down with, so don't worry. I think that's um, it's really beautiful to, like you said, to have the time and space to, to have those conversations, but to do it in a curated way where it's focused and understood and gives yourself that depth. Because when we're thinking about personal culture, it is a lot of deep self-reflection. What's your experience been taking that sense of who you are into the workplace or different types of cultures yeah it's interesting because I guess because I do international research in different markets anyway so like in China like Turkey India 
And it's really strange when I get to see certain patterns, but stakeholders wouldn't know that actually. And I find it fascinating when they're making like really big product decisions <laughs> of a direction because of their upbringing or their beliefs and things, but they never learn English as a second language. They don't understand how difficult it is to, to like get a visa, for example, and the preparation that's involved to kind of pass this English test that I've been designing the service for. And it's only when they get to hear the voices and they get to hear those different scenarios that they've experienced and they're like, oh my God, of course, it seems so obvious. How can we have not have seen that? And I find it really interesting. The two one that's still in my attention today will be between the, the individualism and the collectivism part. So certain countries, even the way that they're learning, I found it really interesting that there's a much more prominent socialness involved or people involved along in their whole journey. And a lot of the times we design for that singular one person and actually that comes from like even my upbringing, born in UK, education in UK. I have always thought of like, yeah, we designed for that singular person. Yes, we use metaphors like the sports analogies type things where you get to achieve goals and, and there's a competitiveness to it. But the culture in the East is slightly different. Or even Turkey, was, there's a lot of similarities with Turkey and China, for example. And yeah, and then I each of those insights got me to reflect my own behaviours as a result. So this is what I mean by I keep on learning every time I get a new insight. And then that's obviously affects the decisions that we make and also gets me to think about, yeah, it challenges how I want to show up or what mm -hmm. values do I want if I, if I want to lead and inspire others. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and actually, I would say... It's easier to be myself at work than at home, as in, yeah, in the parents' household, because I would say that that's more of the more friction part, really. Like, it's almost the workplace I've, I've intentionally chosen a coach that I feel that I can grow and I feel quite, like, have a lot of autonomy. Like, it's, it's kind of very similar. And I had the opportunity to help my manager grow a team when I first joined it was meant to be a team that is super diverse that is quite nimble in the way that we work it's quite experimental and it's quite different to different parts of the business because we're more of a, like a change agency kind of thing but internally and everyone that we've hired I guess it resonates with our values or why I joined because I kind of had alignment with my what my manager sees as a vision and I see it in the actions that he takes as well because that's the evidence that we look for right but in a home environment to be completely 100% myself I would say that's the harder one because it's that kind of the tension and expectations is so deeply embedded it's having a way to detach and let go of some of that. Yeah, there's a really interesting thing that I noticed when I was speaking. It, it was when I was working, I did a bit of work in Pakistan. And in Pakistan, people on the ground, like communities there were saying, yeah, our relatives that have moved to the UK 
have kept the culture of 1960s Pakistan with them and haven't realized how far the country and culture has moved. And they're, they're holding on to that identity and sense of self so much that any kind of step away from it is reprimanded more severely than for the generation that stayed in Pakistan, where they could grow into this new culture. And it always strikes a chord with me growing up of being a first generation immigrant of this is who we are, this is our culture, this is our identity. And to deviate from that was like, we can't lose who we are, we can't lose that sense of self. And it does, it's a massive journey to kind of fuse those two cultures together and realize it's its own thing. Yeah, no, definitely. When you mentioned that, I remember that as a light bulb moment when I went to China. I finally, firstly, understand it from my dad's perspective why he struggled so much. But I also realized that time capsule that just he took it and just kept it with him so strongly, as she said, is ever moving more tight. And then I realized that Hong Kong, because some of my friends are, they have parents abroad. And I was like, it has changed so much and they've adapted to it. Yeah. How this is such a big disparity. And I only found out that even the name that my dad chose for me, it was only through my Mandarin teacher in China. She was like, did you know that your name is really girly? And I was like, no. And his, she was like, that's a really traditional name, you know, like, and obviously I don't know that kind of context, but she was like, oh, most of the time these days, our names are quite neutral gendered. Like they intentionally yeah. chosen to have a neutral name of the kind of feminine and masculine element to it. Whereas my dad has intentionally chosen at that time to have a definite, like proper feminine name for me. Wow. Which was so interesting. I was like, whoa, I did not realize this. Yeah. That's so interesting. I guess it's the kind of comparison in the UK of names getting outdated here. Yeah, and I think the generation ahead is quite interesting as well because there's definitely more of my friendships that has this fusion where their babies are literally a a mixed identity thing. And what does that mean in terms of... It's interesting the discussions that they're having, even like, oh, do we enforce another language in them? Or what about the food and things like that? There's just it's interesting what we choose as important yeah. to kind of infuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the so language is a really interesting one. And you mentioned that you have a Mandarin teacher there. But for me, culture's really intrinsically linked to language. And if you can speak the mother tongue, you can land on the ground and embed whether you've got an accent or whatever at least you can hold that well I yeah but this is the thing I didn't grow up speaking my mother tongue I learned it later in life by chance really and because I've not had the practice speaking it when I go to Mauritius which is where my parents are from people immediately are like yeah you're not from here you're not one of us you're not local And it's really hard because I have a sense of identity and cultural identity with Mauritius that it's like a rejection when you land there. I've experienced exactly the same thing, but my parents infused Cantonese at a young age. And what I didn't realise, technically, my English 
would have been my second language because my grandparents looked after me and they have a very particular dialect of Cantonese speaking. They come from a small island in Hong Kong. So my first exposure would have actually been Cantonese. But over the time, and my dad enforces it as you have to speak Cantonese at home, and then English took over. So that, but my, I didn't realize that my Cantonese is very conversational, as in I wouldn't be able to listen to the news and understand it because, and I wouldn't be able to read very well. So even for me having a lot of exposure, when I go to Hong Kong, the first thing they say or ask is like, are you an ABC or BBC? It's like American born Chinese or British born Chinese. Oh, wow. They classify and I was like, huh, okay. So they already kind of know. Yeah. <laughs> Very early on. Yeah. What's the difference in Hong Kong? What's the upbringing like between the two that causes that need? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Because then when I moved to China for a year and worked there, it was a very different response. Locals expected me to speak Mandarin and I couldn't speak it. And then they had a go, they almost had a go at me in Chinese for not being able to speak it. It's like, how can, how dare you try to speak English or try to speak Cantonese, but you don't speak Mandarin? Like, yeah. And then it's only when my teacher, this is why I had to get a teacher survival Mandarin skills. She was like, why don't you just explain? First sentence that I learned is like, I only speak very little Chinese because I'm British born Chinese or something like that. So I've used that phrase, you know, in a school setting when I was observing parents and things or teachers. And they were just more, ah, okay. So anything else that I said, they were much more accepting. Yeah. But it's interesting, the judgment that other people have and the expectations really, really early on, it doesn't even give you a chance to to, to kind of explain or anything. Yeah, yeah. Like, I got that in India, definitely, where people expected me to speak Hindi everywhere I went. And I was like, I'm not from India. <laughs> this isn't, I can't, I have no idea. And there, there was a lot of resentment and yeah a, a strange sense of cultural identity and it's hard because for me in particular always trying to find the place that you feel most welcome like I always am looking for that safe ground and you know it is it's hard to not feel that like you fit in a hundred percent anywhere and especially if you don't in your own home like physical home yeah, no, I, I would say that that has been probably what I've been like fighting with, <laughs> the, the kind of friction between the two. But I have done it where there was a fusion, an example of fusion is uh, the most stressful thing you could do is plan a wedding. <laughs> uh, that's, where, that's where all family expectations come up, right? <laughs> uh, and navigating through that and, and just be able to kind of go, oh, actually, it's okay to have it have it the way that I would want it to be which was actually really simple it's like the worst thing I can have is something that's really big <laughs> yeah and, but I guess I was actually really surprised sometimes how my parents can actually be open to learning too so I think sometimes we underestimate their views are kind of fixed but there are times and moments that I've seen that they've kind of either let go or they kind of more accepted yeah 
of more of who I am as well, which is quite interesting. That's lovely. Yeah. I think it's the thing I always underestimate that my parents who have moved from another country have been through the biggest cultural change that I will never experience because they left their parents, they moved to this other country, they had to adapt and assimilate in ways that I will never do because English is my first language. And mm. I think there's that sense of actually they've had to, had to grow as people. We just don't always see it as the children because we see British culture. We want to fit in with our school friends. We want to do all those things. Whereas actually there's a, it's a lot of give and take and empathy with the older generations of how much they have had to change without us realising. That's true. And that's why I said when I moved to China, I kind of had a deeper level of empathy that I realized what it means not to be able to speak the language mm. and how and seeing it from my dad's point of view like immersively experiencing that and what does that feel to kind of have that slight rejection but not be able to take that personally has been yeah quite insightful but you mentioned about language as well and how much difference that kind of yeah, uh, that was quite an interesting one because when I went and travelled in different parts of Asia, there are definite words or that doesn't exist in certain, it can't be translated, first of all. And that means how we communicate. Like when I was learning Japanese, I didn't realise how much you have to read the air. They're not going to be direct about it. That's just not within the way that they communicate. And if you're a person that's used to very like direct, factual things, they're not going to be explicit about it. So mm. how you both interpret it will be so different. Yeah. Because the expectations is so different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the tension kind of becomes because all misunderstanding that happens. You get frustrated from both sides, but you don't understand where it's coming from. Yeah. And I guess that's where like stereotypes come from or how relationships fall apart because it's just those unspoken expectations of behaviour that are defined by the ways that we have grown up or the circles that we find ourselves in. And when someone doesn't meet those, we fall into judgment rather than understanding, which goes back to your first point of trying to be empathetic and creating safe spaces to learn and always learning from those. Yeah. Moving kind of into industry and working, what do you think is wrong with the culture in your industry at the moment, if anything? I think schools have it really tough. <laughs> the the adapting, and I feel like the people in the front line, actually, is, yeah. is so much harder for the teachers. I mean, if you think about it, I don't think they expect it to be frontline workers to that degree. And they're not very protected if you think about it in the the bigger context, at least NHS does have, you know, some sort of, yeah, like the exposure that teachers have to accommodate for so many kind of try to accommodate for access, trying to accommodate for just so many layers of online, offline, all of this. It's, it's still very reactive. There isn't even a chance for that proactiveness. So I see that as more of the, the kind of education kind of culture but also we talk about education but it's such a systemic thing where we're still very focused on the value of academic mm -hmm. than all the other skills that 
is actually really important. So I feel like for younger people these days, the amount of like maybe anxiety or the kind of that mental health well-being space is never really integrated into the curriculum or anything, is it? It's just more of a and therefore we don't learn it until much later. <laughs> until we kind of maybe burn out or something, something that has to happen for us to even be aware or learn about it. So, and I feel like within this pandemic, that I feel is quite challenging. Yeah. And the other one is like, I guess subcultures, you know, Pearson's just such a big company. I would say our team is is kind of quite different to other parts of the areas of the business because of some which are more slightly traditional in the way of thinking or maybe it's because it's like back then publishing was you know was the kind of space and it used to be very waterfall the way that they publish content but we can see the shift in how much learning and has changed and it kind of questions the the way we learn and and the whole education system you know if like higher ed space and virtual learning just that as important to be physically there now like it's a but then you don't get the student experience either which is actually what that's where the growth happens it's not actually the studying of course that's part of it but it's everything else and and actually it's is that part that matters that is taken away from us. Yeah. So yeah, it's cultures a different level. So for the people that we design for and those spaces where it's just kind of tough day to day because it's quite reactive still and navigating through that uncertain unknowns and maybe not having that reflective space at all. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then it's more for within our, kind of organization and subcultures within different teams and how we collaborate because it shows up in how we deliver something whether it's an experience of a product or service it's always down to that culture and communication (laughs) Um, if it's going to have silos you're going to experience fragmented experiences (laughs) along in your journey as well and it's navigating through that really how to change people's like mindsets to a more open growth mindset yeah I think I love all of that because particularly the I think your mental health point is massively undervalued and we forget the influence that education has on us growing up as people let alone the things we learn and I for one know my higher education experience was purely personal growth and very little educational growth but if I went back to university now it would be the reverse because I know myself so much more now that I would focus on my studies in a very very different way and the space we have now where there's not the opportunity for that personal growth what does that look like and where will that leave the next generation of workers to shape the work that they're going into or the cultures that they'll be working in is one for the the future workplace to kind of figure out because there's going to be this workforce that is completely different to our expectations and experiences and all of that kind of stuff yeah I think it's even beyond what we can imagine right now isn't it 
it's huge it really is huge and what would you say is a good example of culture of workplace culture in particular we mentioned right at the beginning about co-creation I think I feel like co-creation is a great way to get people not to focus on just conversations and keep on talking actually to find ways to work together productively visually and making things kind of tangible and I think it's that kind of we think so much with our heads (laughs) we forget about using both the hearts and the hand space as well to kind of have that alignment and somehow co-creation helps to facilitate that much more it invites people to the room in a more inclusive way in that moment of like certain workshops and things I found that it's been very yeah very helpful almost because people feel the sense of like oh I was really I didn't really have an idea of this but always quite abstract but now we have like this alignment but we're kind of together in this and I know how I can contribute and how you can contribute so you're really starting to know how to leverage each other's kind of skills Hmm. But I think the culture, I, I guess, it's like really building those relationships with people first. You can't deliver great work without having those relationships has the basis, has the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it just falls through the cracks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And like happiness is such a key part of that to ensuring the work is good and pre-covid i think the focus of work was on what you delivered rather than how you delivered it whereas now i think we're starting to see a change of how we deliver versus what the outcome is because we've had to rethink how we work together and it's been really beautiful to see yeah no that's really interesting you mentioned that the kind of the process itself of how you're being the right space and mindset and the culture to be able to yeah then over the outcome because I think maybe we become too outcome driven in a way but actually the outcome becomes that kind of byproduct it just happens anyways in the kind of mess that you're in within the process I think because the process sometimes feels uncomfortable and not so tangible it doesn't seem so straightforward we want to get to that outcome quicker, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And if you could change something, anything about kind of the way we view or experience culture at the moment, what would it be? I would say it's okay to be a bit more human. (laughs) So thanks, Rachel, for that. And I think I completely agree being human is exactly what's missing from culture. The sense of bringing our humanity and forgiveness, I think, into all of the conversations that we have in the workplace, but personally as well. Our final question is something we ask all of our guests, and it's a little bit fun, but we named Honey Badger because they're fearless, powerful and intelligent, and that feeds everything that we do as an organisation. So our question is, if you were an animal, what would you be and why? I like how you thought about animals because <laughs> the first thing that came to my head is relating to the, the Chinese New Year, like animals. Nice. <laughs> but I don't know if I want to be associated with that one, <laughs> with the one I have. 
<laughs> I've, I've got a squirrel in my head, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> I think I think because because I see a lot around. First of all, they're very quick, yeah. aren't they? I feel like I guess even though they're small, <laughs> they. I guess they're very nimble and adaptable in the way that when they see a human being, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, they, they know how to re- respond, actually. Yeah, I think you see them as soft, but actually they're very smart too at the same, at the same time. They can be pretty adaptable and responsive. And yeah, I think it's that kind of small, but powerful. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That is a great answer. Thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to our conversations in the future. Uh, Likewise. Thanks for having me, Ben. So there we go. That's all for this episode of CultureCast. I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did recording. If you liked this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can have access to our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes relating to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. And if you want to get in touch with me or any of the guests, then you can find their details in the podcast show notes. Thank you and have a great day.